see that. Uh, there's some faces that of people out there I've met before, and so I want to make sure that before you leave today, I get a chance to meet you. Um, welcome to Hyde, the College of Young Ocean Ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple. And uh, our primary objective as a ministry is to have in-reach into our campuses and our jobs, uh, reaching uh, young adults uh, with the gospel. That's our primary objective. Um, and to involve them in relationship with the Lord, to disciple them, train them in God's Word. Uh, so that we could really, really ultimately plant churches and send missionaries all over the world. Um, it could be. Alex, what's up, man? I heard you met for discipleship this last week. First meeting, right? Congrats. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of you guys uh, that are uh, just getting started in discipleship. I'm really excited for you. And uh, we need to be praying, guys, for our new disciples. We need to be praying for them, lifting them up. Uh, Satan desires to assist them and to challenge them in their new way of thinking. It's always really difficult in the beginning. It's always really difficult. And there's a lot to, to, to wrestle with, with the Lord, and, and there's new things that, that you're learning in uh, those first few months of entering into a discipleship relationship. We need to continue to pray for all of our new disciples. Now, last we met in Romans chapter 12, we talked uh, about gifting. Okay, so like I just read, the beginning of this chapter, of Romans chapter 12, starts with this idea of a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. A person who is, just as Edwin said, someone is willing to give their life because Christ gave his life to us. Someone is willing to die to themselves, yield themselves fully and completely to the Lord, that he might control us. He might move us. And this is the saying this morning, that he would be like the ring in our sails, right? Um, uh, the anchor in the waves. That he would do that to us. But that can only happen if we die to ourselves. Our, our, our personal desires, our personal passions, our personal objectives, we have to be willing to lay those things down that the Lord might do for us. And that's what we've been talking about. Last time we were together, though, we talked more specifically about drinking. And how, really, it starts with being a living sacrifice. But then what we need to do is acknowledge how God gifted us so we might be used the right way. We might be used the right way. We, we kind of invited you, the, the Word kind of invited you to consider what gifting you might have. Here's a list, list of the gifts that we talked about last week. And we divided these out and we discussed what they are. And hopefully you've begun thinking about and praying through how many the Word has made you. And these things are something that, that comes to you by activity sometimes. Sometimes it requires working things out. Sometimes it takes years before you fully realize who God has made you to be. But you can submit at the introductory level. You have the ability to, to test the waters in terms of your giving. All right? Maybe you sign up for a ministry that forces you to teach a little bit. Maybe you do take time. You get a taste of that. You teach little kids and you realize you really enjoy that. Or, or maybe you join the hospitality team and really begin to find out that you're built to be hospitable to people and kind to visitors. Maybe you're built that way. And so um, the best thing you can do is be a living sacrifice. And let the Lord show you and move you and, and begin to guide your life and make things clear to you in terms of gifting. But I want to say this, um, as the entrance to this next section, Alright, uh, we need to first recognize and discuss this idea that, that Satan hates you. This is not fun to talk about, is it? Satan's hating you. I don't know if you hate it. Satan, Satan hates you, though. 
and um, and really he's he's become very very effective in the world today. And uh, hindering Christians from being yielded to the Lord. He's done a really great job of um, as Christians begin to yield to him, distracting him, hindering him. And this is, this is where he attacks. He attacks us at our character. He attacks us at our character. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, he knows his best bet is to attack the integrity of individuals so that the body as a whole eventually falls apart. Alright? Satan, Satan knows that he can't take the whole church down at once. And so he knows that his best bet is to, to attack the individual. Right? And um, we are we are as weak as our weakest link. And so he knows that to attack the individual is to eventually defeat the whole, to defeat the church. And that's his objective. And so the world wants to expose the weakness of Christian character. And if they can do that, if they can if they can attack Christians at their character, then they have the ability to say, see, 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 this is how Christians really are. And they have the ability to dismiss the truth of the gospel at the level of someone's character. That's all they need. Our lifestyles are the result of truth applied or misapplied. Our lifestyles are the result of truth either applied properly and obeyed or misapplied and leads us to be misdirected. If salvation doesn't result in a new type of existence, then what appeal that holds to anyone outside of this body? We have to be new creatures. You know, some of the things we see in the last 100 years, like there's all kinds of evidence of this, but really things have been very effective in terms of this attack, and you usually attack at the leadership level. If you can affect the character of leaders, then everything else kind of falls apart. And we don't have to look very far in the news, right, to see Christian leaders all over, all over the world, really, um, falling. Falling to infidelity, uh, uh, falling to materialism and thievery, right, uh, cheating, stealing. Um, TV all over is filled with people called pastors. They're asking people to send them money um, to what ends. We don't fully know. We know some of them are buying jet airplanes. Right? Um, you know, I don't know if you know this, but uh, I think eight of the richest pastors in the world are in Africa, in the African nations. Well, people tend to be poor, and tend, uh, in, in, uh, as a whole, as a, as a continent, uh, Christianity tends to be fairly new there. Okay? And so they have used their power and authority to be manipulated. The same thing is true in India. While that in India, uh, televangelism is everywhere. Everywhere. And people are asking Christians, young believers, to, to call in and send their money. And this is what people see of Christianity, right? Is the character of these people. And Satan knows it. And he is seeking to cause individuals to fall. If he can do that, he can affect the whole of the body. Now, now the, the same thing works in reverse. 
Okay? If we can guard our character and grow in our character, and we can grow in our ability to be conformed to the image of Christ, then we become that much more strong. And we can be Satan at his own game by beginning with self. By beginning to consider as an individual what it means for you to have godly character, and if you commit to follow after Jesus Christ as an individual, then this church that we hire in his living faith fellowship and the church at large, the universal church becomes stronger for us. And that's really, that's what we're going to talk about today, is how we start with godly character. So the, the, the title of today's message is The Gospel and Practice, Authentic Christian Character. Now, Bruce and I, we're going to start there, but when addressing character, there are a few foundational things to begin with, okay? Um, there, there's just a couple things that we need to start with, and the rest of these character traits are going to be built off these first few character parties, okay? So let's look at verse 9. Let love be without dissimulation. So the very first thing that we need to address is, our, is this issue of love. This issue of love, and that might not come as a surprise, our attitude toward love has to be right in order to have good character. And in a world where we don't really understand what love is, this becomes particularly important. We really struggle with this idea of love. The world says that love means, uh, you know, fly-by-night relationships. The world says that love is optional. And a lot of us know that we've got divorced parents. We've come to realize that it appears to us that love is this optional thing. And the passage here says that love should be without dissimulation. Love should be without dissimulation. The, the prefix dis means utterly, okay? Outright. Absolute. And the word simulation means to act fictitiously or to act safe. And so the call here is that we love without faking it. That we love without faking it. Now we have all, all of the things what feels like fake love. Okay? And we can probably tell a million stories. Right? Like just about people in relationships that you encounter, maybe even some of them here, that seem to be uh, plastic and not real. Okay? I remember um, when I was a kid, you know, I didn't grow up with my dad in the house. I mean, from about five to about... 11. I didn't see my dad. And uh, he, got, he got visitation rights, and you know how that goes. And, and he showed up one day. He showed up one day at the house, and uh, he was going to hang out with us, us kids all day long. And, uh, and he brought a Super Nintendo. And I wasn't mad at him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like 1992 when Super Nintendo came out, and I was pretty stoked about it. But even as a young kid, I, I felt the fakeness of it. I felt I knew fake love. I knew my mother's love, which was genuine and kind and gentle and sacrificial. And then this guy that just showed up, um, it felt fake, yeah? And it turns out it was fairly fake. You know, time to prove that out. And so we know, we know the difference. We know in our heart of hearts what's genuine and real love. And you know, a lot of times we are guilty of displaying fake love. We're guilty of that. We find ourselves doing that. First John 3, 18 says, My little children, let us not love in words, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. 
And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knoweth all things. The important thing to recognize here is that love can't just be the words that we say to one another in time on Sunday morning. It can just be that uh, passive hug, okay? Um, get to see a brother, right? <laughs> it can't just be that. But there has to be action and, and there has to be liveliness behind that. It has to be proven out. And sometimes that takes time. But the important thing to note is that, that we have a tendency to, to function in a fakeness with our love. We, we, we display something that isn't genuine. And so we have to begin with this thing of love because if we're going to have all these character traits, right? If we're going to, if we're going to talk about um, being sacrificial towards other people or functioning in ministry writing or, or learning to be good stewards, if, we have, if we're going to be these things, we have to first start with the why. Why, why be all these things in ministry and in Christian life that God is calling us to be? Well, the reason is, is that we, we are called to love the brethren. And it has to be the foundation for which we build all of our character. Also, it is the primary motivation for Christ coming into this world, dying, and raising again. His love for us is his primary motivation. And our primary motivation must also be love. Now, what do you struggle with love? What do you struggle with loving people. I mean, and there could be all kinds of reasons why you might struggle with love. Right? Bitterness. Right? Maybe you've been burnt in your relationships. Maybe you struggle with isolation. Or, or maybe it's your, your own, you know, maybe you're an introvert and it's just you have a hard time getting to know people. So what do you do when you struggle with loving people? First um, Peter chapter 1 verse 22 kind of gives us some insight into this. It's a thing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren <coughs> love one another with a pure heart fervent. So according to First Peter chapter 1 verse 22 loving the brethren requires a pure soul. Requires a pure soul. So if you want to love the brethren you need to have a purified soul. Okay, well what does that mean? Okay. What it says here is that it begins with obeying the truth in the spirit. Okay, so let's let's work in reverse here. If you can look at God's word, acknowledge what it says, and obey it, then your soul will be purified. And as your soul is purified, you will have unfeigned love for the present. You can't come to church on a Sunday morning and expect that you're just going to love people. Loving people is a byproduct of getting to know Jesus Christ. He, he wears off on you, you know. Being in His Word, He wears off on you. And what happens is you begin to share His heart. But that can only happen as you begin to obey Him at His very Word. You know, you know, in, in Christianity, it's really interesting, because a lot of times you accept Jesus Christ at the level of salvation, but then as you begin to pursue Him and get to know Him, the other things that He's asking of you become very, very difficult. Okay? And you see them as first. And the amazing thing about that is if you can choose to just simply obey the Lord at His word and what He's telling you, you will become the thing that you want to become, but it only comes at the level of your obedience. 
But if you're going to be the Christian, if you imagine that you want to be, if you're going to have the character that you want to have, if you want to be Christ-like, if you want to be mission-minded, then it's got to come at the level of obedience and pressing into the example of God's Word. It has to happen here. Loving requires a pure heart, and it also says a sense of fervency, a zeal, right? Seeing you love one another with a pure heart, fervently. This word fervently implies pouring over, like boiling over, like hot water, boiling over. Our first key point is this. An inauthentic love will spoil your ministry. An inauthentic love, a fake love, will spoil your ministry and ultimately disconnect you from God's people. You can only fake your faith and fake your love so long. You can't just come to church faking it. And he said, here's the answer for faking it. Here's the answer. Get back to the gospel. Get back to the gospel. You know, can you remember the conversation like who it was? Maybe I think for a minute. I can think it was one of you in this room. I had a conversation recently where someone was telling me that they were having a hard time loving. They were so honest. And they were having a hard time loving. And they felt a little bit cold. And they felt a little bit disconnected. And the only thing that I could say is go back to the gospel of John. I can't give you a prescription. I can't say to you, we'll do this thing and your heart will get right. It's not, it's not some sort of magical series of things. It's not some sort of concoction. It's very, very simple. You've got to go back to your salvation. When we're struggling with love, the best thing you can do is look at love in its purest form. We have to be in there. And so things are feeling inauthentic. I'm, I'm warning you that the end of that is you falling out of ministry. And you won't be effective for this ministry, for sure. You've got to start that at the gospel. We also need to, uh, moving on to the, to the next point, our attitude towards good and evil has to be right. Our attitude towards uh, good and evil has to be correct. Um, so the second part of this verse says, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. The word abhor means to be horrified by. To be horrified by. There should be repulsion for sin in our lives and the lives of those around us. Sin should be repulsive to us. It should disgust us. Alright? Now, we have a hard time with this. We have a hard time, time being repulsed by sin or horrified by sin. We misapply this idea very, very easily. We get out of balance. So the first thing is, a lot of us in this room, and this is probably the thing we struggle with the most, is that we don't hate sin as much as we wink at it. We don't hate sin as much as we observe it, passively engage it, and dismiss it. And this is what gives us the liberty on a Friday night to watch a movie that we shouldn't. This is what gives us the ability to have a conversation with a person who's speaking with you and not 
This is the type of thing, you know, allows you to stand in a circle of work or, or at school when everyone in the circle is gossiping and to somehow find ourselves in a position where we're engaged. We're very passive as it concerns sin. We know what it is. Okay? And at some level we just like it. Maybe bring us a little bit of discomfort. But we're passive as it concerns the way we think about it. And the problem with that is, is that you will eventually, if you don't acknowledge God's hatred for sin and take it on for yourself and adopt that way of thinking, you will eventually just end up slipping into sin. That's just how that works. And on the flip side of that, many Christians are so glorified by sin that they're out of the judgmental. And they get out of balance the other direction. And they think it's their job to go around casting condemnation onto every person. And that, that's out of balance, that's disproportionate the other way. You know, a, a, a lot of times it's people really functioning in, in uh, arrogance because they think that they're holy. A lot of times it's prudishness. I mean, uh, like, I have family members that are believers, that, are, that believe the Word of God, they're saved Christians. And they're so prudish. And it's their own, like, type of prudishness. Right? Like, the thing that they've come to. And, and it looks like all different kinds of stuff. I mean, Christians have all different kinds of predispositions as it hurts in terms of prudishness. And they think all kinds of sin are wicked. Like, and, they, and they go around talking about it. And, um, man, here's the thing about that. You're not getting anyone closer to the gospel by walking around telling them that they're a sinner. That can't be the only objective, is to cast judgment. Well, Christians ought to disdain sin, but should seek to overcome evil by feeding to that which is good. Romans chapter 12, verse 21, not to get ahead of ourselves, tells us that you overcome evil to good. And, and the word thieving literally means letting hold or joining oneself. So here's our key point. Hating evil is meaningless if you aren't willing to join yourself to righteousness. Hating evil is meaningless if you aren't willing to join yourself to righteousness. And many of us really don't know what that means. Many of us don't know what it means to join yourself to righteousness. And the truth is, obeying God's word is righteous. Obeying God's word is righteous. And this is why discipleship is so crucial, because if you don't know God's word, you can't obey it. And we have got to get to a place where hating sin is not good enough. Being mad at Satan is not good enough. Being disappointed in your family members. Who are, who are afraid to sin. It's not good enough. You yourself have to be righteous. You yourself have to be righteous. And that begins with obeying God's word. So we have to afford that which is evil, we have to cleave to that which is good. Okay? Next, our attitude towards others has to be right. Our attitudes towards others have to be right. Verse 10 says, he kindly affections one to another with brotherly love. In honor, preferring 
one another. So let's break this, these verse, this verse down for a second. What do we mean by affection? Okay, so the word affection implies tenderness, a gentleness towards people. One another means that it's mutual. It's a mutual love. It's coming from both directions. And it's brotherly love, meaning it's familiar. So when we're talking about the church, folks, we need to be tender towards one another. We need to be gentle towards one another. And it needs to be mutual. And if we can learn to trade gentleness for gentleness and love for love and affection for affection, then that makes us particularly strong. Now, this is a, this is a certain type of love. This is a, a brotherly love. This is a sisterly love. We are a family. And when you look across this room and you see one another, I think, I think, this is one of the things that I'm most proud about this ministry, but I don't know if this is something that we're perfect at. But I think you guys see brothers and sisters, or at least you desire to. And I, and I can see this in the way that you guys treat each other. This is where it's most important. How you treat each other. And with the exception that you treat each other. I see, I see sisters coming to sisters for advice and for counsel. I see you guys spending time in thoughtful conversation. I see brothers coming to one another. And you guys are not afraid, you know, think about family, they're not afraid to say the hard things. You know, a perfect family, some of us are imperfect families, right? Where there's a lot of fighting and animosity and things were right. Then in the right family, a perfect family, the family is functioning as Christ as its head. Then it's okay to say hard words to one another and still love each other and to move beyond that. I see it in the way you guys sacrifice to each other and give to each other. How you open up your home to one another. I see it in how you guys spend your time. You want to be together. And this is, this is amazing to me, and I love this about being with Tyler. It's not something that we figured out. And here's the deal. We've got more people who are coming every week to Tyler. Every week that are joining us. And those people need to come in and know that we are a family. And that will be our continual challenge, is to treat other people with affection as they enter into our midst, as they come and join us. We have to continue to be filled with love so that we can treat one another with affection. So it says, how is this displayed? It tells us right here, it says it's displayed in honor preferring one another. Our love and affection towards one another is displayed in the way that we prefer one another over ourselves. To prefer one another means to put uh, others over yourself. It means you are self-serving. You put others' emotions and desires and needs over your own. This is super hard to do, by the way. I'm not talking about this. And I'm like incredibly convicted about it as I'm talking about it because I know that this is an incredibly difficult thing for me to do. It's to prioritize other people and their needs over my own. It's difficult. It's not easy. So listen to what Jesus says in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you. That ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. It goes back to my initial point, doesn't it? My initial point was Satan seeks to divide us 
by the happiness character of individuals. Okay? If we can love one another, then the world will know how Christ loved us first. One of the ways that we display the truth of who Jesus Christ is is by learning to love one another the right way and preferring other people over ourselves. Did Christ not prefer us over himself when he hung on the cross? He put us over his own well-being. He put himself in harm's way. And we will best display Christ if we do that amongst one another. Key point. Christian character exhibits self-denying preferential treatment. This one's a little wordy, sorry. I always try to simplify these down. I try to boil them down. I'm not, I haven't been good at that lately, have I? Brian, you have a question? Oh, you're awesome. Thanks. Christian characters in self-denying, preferential treatment, and empathy towards your church family. Empathy towards your church family. And this is going to come up again. This idea of empathy means in sharing in one another's burdens and pain. Right? You put yourself in someone else's shoes. Right? You can think about them over yourself as you emphasize them. The Christian character is with a self-denying, preferential treatment and empathy towards your church family. The next attitude is an attitude of stewardship. An attitude of stewardship. Now, this one is going to hurt, guys, so get ready. Right? Some of you are were with me until this moment. <laughs> 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 I am a man or woman of character. Okay, and this is, this is the moment where you might, you might struggle here. So 11 says, not slothful in business, fervent spirit serving the Lord. The word slothful here means sluggish in your endeavors. Okay, sluggish in your endeavors. And some of us, it's true, some of us struggle with a sluggish lifestyle. So the, the problem with being slothful is that slothful people are always oblivious to their slothfulness. They're unaware, okay? So let me help you for a moment. Right, when I was young, it was really awful to me, and I didn't, and I've always hated this, but we're so far removed now. When Pastor would bring in the Jeff Foxworthy thing, um, I always was like, is just saying, here I am, I'm 35, and I'm about to, like, accidentally reference that. But you used to say, you, you, you know you're a redneck, have you ever heard these awful jokes? Yeah, we hear that. I'm not doing that. But you do, but listen, you know you're slothful if. <laughs> if you have trouble keeping a job for more than a month or two. If you have trouble keeping a job for more than just a couple months, then you know that you're struggling with thoughtfulness. That's a pattern. You might, you might be thoughtful if you're great at school or that. You might be a thoughtful person. This prioritizing things. You might be thoughtful if you don't pay your bills on time. You think back over the last fiscal year? Yeah? You might be thoughtful if you're not paying your bills on time. I think it's late. You might be thoughtful if you play more than eight hours of video games every week. 
Now, we realize that eight hours because that's one full day, day of work. That's one full day of work, right? And I say eight hours, and if you piece together the time that you spend playing video games, there's a good chance that you spend eight hours doing it. There's a lot of, like, that's, that's something that's very realistic in a ministry of people your age. Good voice, especially. Really, so far, we're probably 75% of this is probably a suggestive voice. And it's possible to play among young men. Oh. It's true. And not that it can't be true for women, but it's particularly true of young men who God, you know, uh, has also called to be the leaders of the church. So, Satan's got your number. You might be thoughtful if friends, and this is a big one, guys, if, if friends and family don't ever ask you to help with anything. If people have stopped asking you to help with stuff, then that's probably a good sign that you might be a thoughtful person. Your thoughtful attitude is not welcome in ministry. See, being a novice is one thing. Being new to things and having to learn and and maybe stumbling along the way, and maybe there being failures, and then so that's one thing. That's no big deal. No one cares about that. But being a slackerist or a procrastinator in ministry hurts everyone around you. And this is what it tells them. Listen carefully. It tells them that your church family is not important. It tells the people in your church family that they are not as important as you. If you handle your ministry with thoughtfulness, and some of you do. Some of you can't be on time when people are expecting you to be on time. Some of you put off what can be done today. You put it off till tomorrow and then you never get to it. This cannot carry over into ministry. And you have know this principle from the discipleship. Luke 16, 10. So he that is faithful now is at least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If there therefore uh, if therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who, sh- uh, who shall give you that which is your own? And so the principle of prayer here is this. If you can't be faithful with physical things, like being to work on time, well, you're probably not ever going to be faithful to handle the spiritual things the right way. If you can't handle yourself with physical things, paying your bills on time, the problem is no one here at church is going to put you in charge of any sort of ministry leadership. That is probably going to happen. And so, we need to make sure that we're learning how to prioritize. And that we're learning especially how to treasure the things about treasures because we're stewards. And we need to have the attitude of stewardship. The right attitude of stewardship. God has gifted you. You know, we covered that last time we met. God has gifted you. Right, you can waste those gifts. You can throw them away because of slothfulness. There are many signs of slothfulness, but at the end of the day, people just don't want to entrust ministry responsibility to lazy and untrustworthy people. This is true. So what's the opposite of that? The opposite of that is fervent and spirit, serving the Lord. See, the opposite attitude is fervency and fiery passion to the Lord. And we must be in, in uh, fervent in spirit as we serve God. 
It has to come from a place of overflow. It has to come from a place of passion. And many of us, a lot of times, we're looking to like trump up passion. We're hoping it's like circumstances can coax passion out of us. The right word of song is disrespected right. Right? And suddenly that passion will be stirred up. And we rely on like gimmicks to do that. And the truth is, services can only come from one place. Being close to Jesus. Being close to Jesus. Being close to the gospel. And zeal can change this. And when it's directed towards serving God, it can have a huge impact on ministry and it affects everyone around you. When you have right zeal in terms of the way that you serve the Lord, other people will absolutely be influenced by the Lord's you. And guess what? Guess what was like? The intimacy with Christ. Well, why is it that Miles is so passionate about A.D.? It seems awful boring to me. Well, the reason is because he loves Jesus. And then he's abstracted, I suppose, but it makes a lot of sense. He's communicating things to the body of Christ through PowerPoint, through sound, okay? Through making sure that the audio is uploaded to the website, making sure that things get done. He sees that as significant. Why? Because, because he loves audio visual? No. Because he loves Christ. And the message of Jesus Christ. And so when you ask Miles, well, why is it that you serve with, with zeal? His response to you should be, because I love serving the Lord more than anything else in the world. So, key point ministry zeal is fueled by faithfulness, faithfulness to the message of the gospel. You know, we have the word fervent is used just twice in, in the Bible, in the whole Bible. And the other time it's used is in relation to Apollos. Yes, you know Apollos is? Um, he was a, a preacher. He was a preacher uh, at the time of Paul. And he was considered to be an amazing teacher of God's word. Let's read about him real quick. Start verse 24. A certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man, and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. He didn't even have the full gospel. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, who with Aquila and Priscilla and, uh, had further, they took him unto them and expounded unto them the way of God more perfectly. They gave him the gospel. They said, hey, you know what? The guy that you're preaching about, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, he came, he missed it. He came and he, he died on the cross. And he rose again. He said, the news had not reached the followers yet. And when he got, he was further before him. And what we see is a testimony of that diligence. That word diligence is super important as it relates to further. We see that diligence continue to the remainder of the New Testament whenever his name is brought up. It's always favorable. Because he had zeal. He had zeal to serve the Lord. And really that came because of the gospel was true in his life. We need to have an attitude of faith. Our attitude of faith is important. Okay, okay, so are you with me so far? Alright, what have we, we talked about? We just talked about 
our attitude toward love, our attitude toward good and evil, our attitude toward others, our attitude of stewardship. And here we are, our attitude of faith. So the next few attitudes, okay, we are, we're calling these attitudes attitudes of faith because they all require belief that God is present, that he's paying attention, that he's protecting us, and that he's preparing a way. We have to believe God. We have to believe God. It's not good enough to just serve him at a place of, of zeal, for the sake of zeal. We have to serve them in faith. We have to be stewards that are faith-minded. We're believing in God. So what does it say? It says rejoicing in hope. That word hope is important. We'll come back to that. Rejoicing in hope, patience in tribulation, and continuing instant and prepared. So let's start with rejoicing in hope. So, so here we encounter worship as a response of hope. Hope. Now what is our hope rooted in? Our hope is rooted in the promises that have been extended to us in the Bible. Our hope is related to what God says is true of us in His Holy Spirit, in His inspired Word, in His spoken Word towards us. Promises extended. And the only way to have hope is to believe in the promises that have been extended to you. It's the only way to have hope. Hope that God is protecting us. That he's watching us, that he's forgiving us, that he's blessing us, and most importantly, that he's preparing a future for us. That there's something beyond this moment now. Right here, right now, that there's something beyond this. Hope itself is built on the knowledge and faith that things, are, that are, things in our lives are changing for the better for those who worship God. Hope is rooted in the idea that things are changing in our lives for the better, because we worship Jesus Christ the Savior. That each day is getting better. That each day is more exciting. That we have more and more to trust in for. And that one day, what awaits us is a kingdom. And the presence of the living God. And that is where our hope is rooted. And we need to rejoice in that hope. Lamentations 3.24 says, The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him. To the soul that seeketh him, it is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. For those who believe in Jesus Christ, our future is set. And that truth, our future, the truth of our future, is what should cause us to rejoice. Our understanding of the future impacts our present. It absolutely does. And so we need to rejoice, full of faith, in what he's doing in our lives. The next thing is patience and tribulation. Patience and tribulation is impossible without hope. So they build on each other. You can't be patient and tribulation if you don't have hope. Right? You're seeing the progression. Because listen, if you don't have hope, the tribulation you face right now seems empty. It's vain. And then it becomes more painful and harder to endure. You have to begin with hope. If you're going to be patient and trial and tribulation, you have to begin with knowing that things are going to change for the better. Even if that means that one day you will die and be in the presence. If that's the only hope that you've got, that's good enough. That's good enough. 
So patience and tribulation is impossible without hope. If you didn't know that God was working on your behalf before your cause, then where would you derive your patience from? Where would you find that patience? Christians should be the most patient people in the world. Literally. Knowing that everything works for good for those that love Christ. We should be incredibly patient people. Romans chapter 15 verse 4 says, For whatsoever things were written before time were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The promises are what give us hope, and they give us patience and comfort. So we find our hope in God's Word. If you are seeing that theme, the theme here of God, the underlying theme is going back to God's Word. We find our patience and trust in Him at His Word. It gives us hope to endure in the midst of times of trouble, sorrow, loss, a place of need. We can have patience in the Lord. Next, instant in prayer. The next attitude of faith is instant in prayer. In verse 12, we're confronted with the work of prayer. Wow. For one who believes God and is patient in God, it would be a waste for them not to be prayerful. Okay? For you to say about yourself that you are hopeful in God and you're patient in your tribulation, but not be a prayer warrior is just a complete waste. Let me explain myself. Prayer is the, is the functional an intimate dialogue necessary for appealing to and instigating God's grace. You have the ability to bend God's ear, the creator of all things. And don't break your patience in your tribulation. But patience in tribulation doesn't mean sitting and waiting. Patience in tribulation means begging God for his outcome. Here's the key point. And here's the deal. Prayer makes faith useful. So it does. Prayer makes our faith useful. Our prayers invite God's will to take advantage of our circumstances. Our prayer is divine leverage in a carnal world. That's what prayer is. It's divine leverage in a carnal world. That's what prayer is. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's our greatest point of leverage. See, God's word is powerful. Well, we need God to go before us. And so our, our greatest power that we carry with us is the ability to speak directly to God and to carry His words in our hands. That's trusted. I mean, that's all of our power. So our key point is faith is not complete until it's comprised of hopefulness, patience, and prayer. Your faith is not complete until it's comprised of hopefulness, patience, and prayer. Faith has to be those things. Okay, we're not going to go any further than this, so you guys can handle it. Romans <laughs> <laughs> um, chapter 12 turns out really actually pretty hard. And it's pretty hard. Because it gets to the heart of the matter. It, 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 because it gets so practical so fast. 
You know, we were just in chapter 11. Things were so heady and abstract, and, and we could feel really good about that. Now we're in chapter 12. And we like it. We get excited because it's back to being about us. And it's our Christian. We get excited about that. But then quickly we realize that actually that's a painful place to be. Chapter 12 is about you. It starts with you being the living sacrifice. You dying. You dying to self. You dying to your purposes, right? And then it gets into the same of like, God wants to use you how he made you. He wants to use you. It's a different. And then you have to like confront and say, like, who am I really? That's who it is that God made me to be. Maybe I'm not the person that I thought I was. Maybe my gifting isn't what I imagined it to be. Maybe I'm, I'm telling gifts that I don't have. And that becomes really painful to think about yourself with criticality like that. And then now here we are, talking about what it means for us to have character. You guys, listen to me. The church cannot be what it's supposed to be if your character isn't right, if your love isn't right. If your perspective on good and evil isn't right, when we're talking about good and evil, we're talking about whether or not you're going to be a holy person. I mean, we're talking about stewardship and, and how we handle our lives and, and the verses that are just coming. You know, you guys know what semicolon is? You guys know what semicolon is? Like a semicolon is like probably the most unnecessary punctuation. <laughs> you know, hold on now. Because every time one of these semicolons comes up, there will probably be a period here. Except for the fact that it's God's word and gives everything with great intention. You know what a semicolon is? A semicolon is a pause between connected clauses. Thoughts. In other words, we can't get away at looking at these, each one of these things in the silo. We can't study these as individual phrases. We can't say to ourselves, um, you know, we can't say to ourselves rejoicing in hope. Done. We don't get to do that. See, the semi clause forces us to think about all these things that are connected to one another. And so what we started with at the very beginning might have been a conversation about love, but now we're talking very practically about whether or not you're going to be a prayerful person. We might have been talking about good and evil at the beginning, Well, now we're talking about whether or not we're going to be the steward of God's resources. The my point to you is this, that all of us have flaws with these things that we turn, but they ought not be filled. And the answer to all of these things and becoming and gaining the character that Christ has for us is making sure that our personal relationship with Jesus Christ is on point. Are you hearing what I'm saying? I really don't mean for this message to be boring. I feel like I'm giving you a laundry list. That's not what I'm intending. I'm calling you to love Jesus Christ more than you do right now. And when you do, we'll be the disciple that you're supposed to be. And this ministry will be full of people and get together, functioning with their gifting, loving the Lord, full of power, and guess what? Very indestructible. Indestructible. When Satan's devices come, as a ministry, we'll be able to face them. Are you with me? Put it this way, like, uh, is this week three or four back at school? Week five? Dang. You're tired. Tomorrow, tomorrow, 
this evening, who are you going to be? Are you going to prioritize God's word? And are you going to obey him? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your book. We thank you that you wrote us a letter. And we can't escape the truth within 